My name's Clover, and we need to talk about eco-anxiety. Some of you may be wondering what eco-anxiety even is, while others may be struggling with it right now. This podcast is for both of you. For those curious listeners who want to understand the impacts of climate change on our mental health, this podcast is your crash course. Each week on the show, we'll be exploring a different face of the climate crisis, from the food we eat, to our relationship with media, our addiction to fossil fuels, and everything in between. I'll be speaking to leading experts and global companies about challenges and solutions. You'll also hear from young people around the world who feel eco-anxious, and hear from our resident psychotherapist, Caroline Hickman, about how to navigate some of these feelings. And for those of you who feel eco-anxious right now, I'm here to tell you that you are not alone. And far from being a sign of weakness, your eco-anxiety is totally normal. In fact, it's a sign of your empathy, proof that you are awake to the issues. I believe that talking about our eco-anxiety is the first step to turning it into agency, community, and vision. So let's talk about eco-anxiety. On the previous episode, we discussed women and eco-feminism, featuring Nagiz Deber, eco-feminist and creator of Chicks for Climate, and Fadez Elhansali, Global Communications and Sustainability Director at Dove. We heard from our resident psychotherapist on the feminine being a force for change and how we all can create space for connection and nurturing. If you haven't already, be sure to check it out after this episode. Today's episode is about fast fashion. Over the past few years, my passion for fashion and wanting to dress to express have been clouded by eco-anxiety. And I know I'm not the only one. If you've ever lived in the UK, you'll know the alluring and outrageously cheap clothes of Primark or Boohoo. Places where you can buy hoodies, bikinis, or dresses for less than a pound. To put that in perspective, minimum wage in the UK is about eight pounds. If you ever thought to yourself, this is too good to be true, that's because it is. The cost of fashion, as we'll learn in today's episode, is huge. Over recent decades, the quality of clothes has nosedived, and so is how value for them. In my grandmother's day, a single dress might be worn, mended, and passed down for generations. Now, we treat clothes like they're disposable. A YouGov survey found that 24% of Australians threw out a garment after one wear. Just one. A few years ago, I opted out of this hamster wheel. Yet, there are still times when I become paralyzed in the aisles of a shop, looking for something as basic as socks. Who made these socks? What's the material? Where was it grown? Who grew it? And if I'm paying this little, how do the many people in that chain even afford to feed themselves? And if I'm paying this little, how do the many people in that value chain even afford to feed themselves? What if buying clothes didn't have to be a guilt-ridden act? How do we create a global fashion industry that isn't exploitative, polluting, or financially inaccessible to your everyday climate activist? How do we make fashion truly sustainable and make shopping for clothes less eco-anxiety inducing? To help me answer these questions, I interviewed Michael Doughty, co-founder of sustainable fashion disruptor Hilo Athletics, who you'll hear from at the end of this episode. First up, I reached out to my new friend Aditi Maya, photojournalist, labor rights activist, and campaigner, whose mission is is to decolonize fashion and sustainability. Aditi has the most 
most aesthetic Instagram I follow. So you should definitely go check it out. Aditi, over to you. Hi, everyone. My name is Aditi Meyer. I am a sustainable fashion blogger, a photojournalist, and labor rights activist based out of Los Angeles. I'd love to hear what your catalyst was for getting into this space. So I had my start in the space around 2014, and I had always had a passion for design and aesthetics as ways to explore my South Asian heritage, especially as a daughter of the diaspora, right? So always looking for creative mediums to connect with my cultural lineage. And at this time, I learned about the Rana Plaza factory collapse. And so for those that are not familiar, Rana Plaza was an eight-story garment factory in Dhaka, Bangladesh, producing for some of the world's biggest fast fashion names. And the the day before it collapsed, there were structural cracks found in the building. But there was so much pressure from upper management to have workers complete orders that they were called back into work. The next day, Rana Plaza collapsed, killing over 1,100 individuals and injured over 2,500. And it is, is literally considered the biggest industrial disaster of our time. And so for me, Rana Plaza very much catalyzed a new understanding of fashion beyond look at this pretty dress. It was about the politics of labor, the environmental impact of fashion, and the disproportionate impact that the fashion industry had on Black, Indigenous people of color around the world, especially women, because it is a largely gendered industry in terms of its workforce. So all of these things set the groundwork for me <laughs> to start a blog at 3am, being a child of the internet, that's I guess what we do. But it was to explore the idea of sustainable fashion. What are some of the current impacts of the fashion industry as it currently stands? The fashion industry has huge, huge implications. As far as the environmental impact, we have to understand the links between the fashion industry and the fossil fuel industry when synthetic materials like the polyesters, acrylics, and rayons of the world make up a large, large part of our current fashion model. In fact, upwards of 60% of clothing found in the market today is made out of synthetics. And there's a lot to be said about the environmental impacts of the chemical treatments that we use in the process of dyeing and that run off is often polluting the waterways of the communities that these factories are rooted in, which is disproportionately located in countries in the global south. And so this kind of sets the stage for sacrifice zones, which is the idea that vulnerable populations around the world undergo resource extraction and exploitation, whether that's the pollution of their waterways, exploitation of their workforce and other natural resources as a means for quote unquote infinite growth and success for the fashion industry. And we often see colonialism as a distant abstraction of the past, but it's recreating itself actively in the world we have today. So I like to take us back to the British Empire in India, because I think that the British Empire in India very much gives us a picture into some of the first models of fast fashion. In India, prior to colonization, we were 25% of the world's economy between textiles and spices. And that was largely the draw for the British Empire was those two things. And so when the British Empire came to India, there was a systemic plan created where India was to export its cotton, only the raw material to Britain to be processed in the mills of Lancashire and other places like that to be sold back to India at a premium. And so this had a few different effects. For one, the price that it was sold back to India very much led to the destruction of our artisan industries because spinners and weavers were unable to afford this cotton. But what's more important to note is that this set the groundwork for a system predicated on speed and scale at all costs. Prior to this, the dominant fashion model was localized, 
economies where you had artisan practices, it was common practice to spin your own cotton at home through a process called kadi. And so when we look at fashion today, you'll notice that it operates on the global race to the bottom. And the global race to the bottom is the idea that brands are looking to produce as much as they can, as fast as they can, as cheap as they can, which means precisely heading to those countries that are still reeling from the impacts of colonial violence. Because when we see companies headed to Cambodia and Myanmar and Bangladesh, it's not because of better factories or better infrastructure, it's because it's cheaper and it's the next frontier to exploit. As far as what fast fashion has done, prior to the rise of fast fashion, which I will add was first coined in the 1980s, I believe, by the New York Times, and they were referring to Zara's 15-day turnaround time for clothes. There was traditionally four seasons. You know, we had fall, winter, summer, spring. And so that's the timeline at which clothes would enter the market. With fast fashion, it became 52 seasons in the year, which means that there's new collections every week with fast fashion, which is very, very concerning because for one, a system predicated on speed and scale comes at the sacrifice of quality. It comes at the sacrifice of the environment, but most importantly, it comes at the sacrifice of garment worker lives, as we saw with Rana Plaza. On the consumer end, fast fashion has given rise to apathy of where our clothes come from and where our clothes will go. We have now seen clothing as a disposable commodity rather than the art that it is. Because, you know, I, I never want to write off fashion as frivolous. I think that's something that's been done time and time again. And it's also a very patriarchal framework to look at fashion because it is largely gendered. And I think we can't overlook the role of art because fashion is art. And, you know, I think there's a lot to be said about quality as well. When I go into thrift stores, which is something that I've been doing since I was very young, you'll notice with vintage clothes that they last a while. If you actually look at the model of fast fashion, things aren't meant to last. And so you will kind of be stuck in the cycle of constant consumption to make up for it. The marketing that has come hand in hand with the rise of fast fashion is important to note because that kind of goes into the mental health aspect where so many individuals have been conditioned with this idea of retail therapy, buying your way into <laughs> feeling better. The idea of the proximity you could get to a certain class dynamic or like feeling a certain way when you're constantly consuming with the rise of like Instagram influencers that will never want to be seen in the same outfit twice. And so I think we need a real cognitive shift of saying, you know, true style is personal style, not following what's on any arbitrary mannequin. And so develop that for yourself and learn to style your pieces time and time again. And try and invest if you can in pieces that you can actually pass down and wear throughout the years rather than being conditioned to follow this very homogenous culture of what's in at the moment. I'd love to hear from your experience if those feelings of eco-anxiety are something that you can relate to personally. Yeah, most definitely. I think <laughs> there is a point in every, especially folks that are engaging in the work with climate activism where we, you know, burnout is real, eco-anxiety is real. But what I have done to kind of combat that is engage in the work of political reimagination. That is a lot more easier <laughs> said than done because we have been fed a very narrow mechanistic understanding of how the world should operate and how the world can operate. What comes to mind is that quote by Mark Fisher that it's easier to imagine the end of the world than it is to imagine the end of capitalism. And this is where I think understanding history is very important because there was a time where these systems in their current extractive, exploitive modes did not exist. There's other 
other models in place because I think a lot of our climate crisis is attributed to a capitalistic model predicated on infinite growth with finite resources. There was this idea established and very much pushed by people like Margaret Thatcher, which was called TINA, which is an acronym that means there is no alternative. And that was basically pointing to like neoliberalism as uh, the only way to frame our world and economies. And when we understand how it's been a political project to limit our political imaginations and just imaginations, period, it just frames a way that, of course, eco-anxiety is going to be inevitable because we have been fed this idea that nothing's going to work. And so what has given me a lot of power and peace, I think, is also doing my due diligence to study the works and worldviews of indigenous communities around the world and how they're framing their societies, which give us a window into what's possible when you have a symbiotic relationship with the natural world, when your organization as a community is rooted in protecting one another. And so it goes back into that practice of like, what can the world look like? And then thinking about the day-to-day steps that you can cultivate to make that a reality and empowering each other with that vision of what the world can be, because there's nothing that we can do without that hope. And hope insinuates that we have some fragment of imagination that another world is possible. So that's what I tell myself. And I hope that can help some other folks as well. As a final point, I'd love to hear if there are some organizations or companies and brands or communities who you feel really embody that future world that is possible. The Garment Worker Center, which is the organization that has very much led garment worker resistance here in downtown LA. Some organizations in India, one is Oshadi Collective and another one is Kitty Varasat Mission. And they're an organization that is kind of looking at the ties between culture, traditional agriculture and ecological preservation, which are all three things that I love. (laughs) It's super interesting to think of fashion as both a source of comfort and distress for our mental well-being. On the one hand, we've really been conditioned to this idea of retail therapy, feeling better by buying more. While on the other, more and more young people are feeling eco-anxious in response to the terribly destructive nature of fast fashion. I want to hear from more young people about how they feel. Here they are. My name is Ines Hart. I'm 18 years old and I live in the UK. My relationship with fast fashion. I've definitely been guilty of only buying fast fashion. Even five years ago, the concept of buying secondhand wasn't something anyone did, at least in my age group. Climate change has definitely impacted how I think about fast fashion. You know, when I found out that the fashion industry is something like the second largest polluter in the world, I think I think it just completely switched how I thought about fast fashion and its impacts. You just see all these cheap prices and if it seems too good to be true, it probably is. And someone somewhere is paying the price. As of now, I haven't bought fast fashion for a year and I mainly shop on online secondhand platforms like Depop or Vinted where possible. Eco-anxiety in young people may stem from a lack of action from government. Eco-anxiety can also be seen as being eco-compassion. I think it brings me some sort of comfort that if other people are feeling the same way I do, it means that lots of people care. So I think that is hopeful for the future. 
I'm Ira. I'm currently living in London, but I'm originally from Hong Kong, and I'm 24 years old. Climate change makes me feel really anxious. Sometimes I think about the future, and I don't want to have kids necessarily, knowing that the future is so dire, which is like kind of depressing.、Uh, sometimes I'm able to be a bit more detached from it and look on the bright side of things. I love fashion, and I used to consume a lot of fast fashion because they're cheap. But I would say now about 95% of my new clothes are now from charity shops and secondhand clothes from like eBay and Depop. I feel like fast fashion has such a high turnover of products, and it's kind of like the pinnacle of consumerism in my eyes. And there are loads of influencers on social media encouraging more consumption and promoting these kind of fast fashion brands as if like a lifestyle that is like really worth following. But actually, I feel quite the opposite. I feel like we would do well to encourage less consumption overall and promote a more minimalist lifestyle, where say we have a smaller wardrobe with like good quality staple pieces that will last you years. But I feel like kind of really anxious that. The world doesn't seem to be moving in that direction at all. My name's Ella. I am 25 years old, and I am from Greater Manchester. I can definitely relate to the term eco anxiety. It's something that I live with. It's something that I think a lot of us have to learn to live with. I would describe it as a constant feeling of unease and worry. It's something that's part of us that takes over sometimes, and it's important to recognise that feeling and use it positively to try and promote change. I would describe my relationship to fast fashion as pretty complicated. Like most people, I like. To feel good about myself in the clothes that I'm wearing, and to feel like I'm keeping up with trends and having nice new things to wear, but also there's a big part of me that feels guilty about buying new clothes and buying new things to wear because I am aware of how much fast fashion is impacting our environment, and I understand the importance of having clothes that are accessible for people who have less disposable income. But I think companies in that case should have an ethical responsibility to produce their clothes. In a way that is not completely destroying our amazing environment. Fast fashion does make me feel thoughts of eco anxiety.、I、get it a lot going in large shops when you see people buying twenty odd items at a time. It makes me feel worried. But something that makes me feel better is being obsessed with charity shops and getting a lot of my clothes secondhand. I really enjoy the challenge. I enjoy searching, and it just makes shopping a much more enjoyable experience. Especially when you get a really, really good bargain. My name is Madeline Bowen. I'm from the U.S. and I am 17 years old. For me, eco anxiety feels like a crushing weight put upon my generation and I's shoulders. The weight of the world's future is in our hands, but where do we even begin? With each individual change we make in our lives, with each march, with each campaign, it still feels like it's not enough. I think it's important to be able to step away at times. Constantly sitting with such feelings of eco anxiety can lead to burnout, and though it can feel counterintuitive at times, preventing burnout is extremely important. Important in the long run, which is exactly where we need to be looking, because climate change isn't going anywhere anytime soon. Personally, fashion has always been a big part of my life. I think many people consider fashion to be a great way of expressing oneself, and as a person with anxiety, this has felt especially true for me because my clothes have allowed me to express myself without ever saying a word. But my clothes have also brought me a lot of guilt because it's not a sustainable practice. Learning about fast fashion has allowed me to look into more sustainable clothing brands and choices when looking for sustainable. 
reasonable clothing options, I was met with very few. Most were online brands marked with extremely high prices. This limited access and high prices combined makes it difficult for people to choose such sustainable options. There needs to be a shift in the fashion industry to make sustainable clothing more accessible for all people, not just those who can afford it. We the consumers have the power. I must make our desire for more accessible, sustainable products heard. I really resonated with what Ella said, how learning of other people's eco-anxiety can be a great source of comfort as it makes us feel less alone. I want to unpack what we've just heard with our resident psychotherapist. Caroline Hickman has spent years researching children and young people's relationships with nature, as well as our feelings about the climate and ecological crisis. Here she is. One of the ways we try and create this identity is through our own idea of beauty. Being able to display ourselves in, in our most beautiful, spectacular form is an inherent part of what it means to be social. And it's very playful and it's very creative. Changing what you look like on the outside with your clothes inevitably has an impact on how you feel on the inside. It changes your mood. So I think that relationship is really important. And I want to acknowledge and value that relationship when we talk about fashion, whilst at the same time holding that tension with not having that impact too negatively on the environment. It's that that we've got to deal with, not fashion itself. Fashion itself, I would want to celebrate, but it's the way fashion has been exploited and distorted and turned into a consumerist nightmare. We're living in a culture that teaches us to externalize our self-worth and find validation in very vacuous, superficial places. And all of our worth is worn on the outside rather than thinking, you know, what is on the inside? What are the values that you show up with? And I heard a terrifying stat recently with over 80% of 13-year-old girls had already used a self-beautification filter. So this next generation of young women in particular, unable to even look themselves in the mirror because it doesn't fit into this very tiny box that we've constructed of what it is to be beautiful, what it is to be worthy in society. It's an addiction to perfection that we're talking about. But the idea of this perfection is given to us by others. If you think about how we develop our identity as infants, we develop our identity, our sense of self, through the gaze of the other, our primary carers. So we gaze into their eyes, they gaze back. And with a bit of luck, if you've got good enough caretakers, they'll say, you're lovely. Look at you. You're fabulous. You're gorgeous. Look at your little eyes. Look at your nose. Look at your hair. And you'll get this mirror back to yourself that you're okay. When that other is fashion or branding or any of these social media platforms that says you are worthless if you don't look like this, what gets lost is that capacity to love yourself and others. And I think that gets played out then in relationship to the natural world. So we struggle to love the natural environment in all of its complexity because the natural world is beautiful and ugly. But that's what nature gives us. So we all have parts of our bodies that really we would never like to have see the light of day. And then we all have parts of our bodies that we think, well, 
I quite like that earlobe or I quite like that toe. And actually, I love my legs for giving me the strength to do things. And I love my eyes for giving me the capacity to see. We lose that natural relationship. We stop seeing the beauty in who we are and what we've got. And that is heartbreaking, but it's relational. This is damage that's done in relationship to others, in relationship to fashion, in relationship to branding, but it can also be healed through relationship. So we all have to be giving each other good, warm, loving mirrors to look into. We all have to make more effort to tell each other that we look fabulous, that we're beautiful, that we love this or that or the other about each other, because that's where the healing takes place. Both Caroline and Aditi spoke to the fact that fashion isn't inherently bad and expressing ourselves through clothes is an important relationship. Yet the problem, of course, is how that relationship manifests, where our clothes come from, how they're made, and the fact that what we determine to be beautiful has become the invention of a money-hungry industry. I'd like to speak to someone who is a disruptor to this space. So I reached out to Michael Doughty, co-founder of Hilo Athletics. There are 25 billion pairs of running shoes made every year, and most are made from unrecyclable plastic. Yet Michael's team are changing this, with shoes that are carbon negative, made from renewable materials that can be composted or sent back to the company for recycling. Here's Michael. I'm Michael. I'm from London. I'm co-founder at Hilo Athletics, which is the sportswear brand for Planet. Could you give us a quick snapshot of what Hilo does, why it exists? Previous to Hilo, I was playing professional football for 10 years and was on this journey of learning about climate change and had this sort of moment one day when my friend, who's now my co-founder, rang me up and said, which brand do I sort of subscribe to as a sports person? And then sort of led me to this quite sort of deep internal discussion with myself being like, oh, I'm like trying to do my bit outside of sport. And actually, I come to work every day and put on clothes and football boots and stuff that I don't really know like how it's made, where it comes from and where it goes. Globally, the sportswear space is definitely doing some good stuff. Like I'm not here to beat the drum or tell anybody off, but fundamentally it can definitely be improved. I guess why it's important is 10 years to sort of change things rapidly. So I always say we're in the business of impact and I just become a dad and having that sort of responsibility on my shoulders and knowing every day I'm getting up and trying to sort of like improve things is super important to me. From your view, how did fashion become so broken? It's an inherent human thing that has grown over time, this this desire to consume, right? And we need to make things and produce things in a better way. But like fundamentally, I think in reflection, we can consume less. And I think a lot of what's driving this is just market forces, right? You've got more people than ever on the planet. And not only is there more people, there's more people consuming and incomes are growing and therefore disposable income is being spent in those directions, which in many ways is a great thing, drives jobs, creates economic growth and supports a ton of people. But fundamentally, when there's an existential question of your existence on the line, that sometimes puts into context how you're purchasing and how relevant is that purchase. I think the fashion industry could do better to communicate that every product has an impact. And I think as a brand, what we try and do, ultimately, I'm a business owner and employer and my livelihood now is predicated on the sales of my goods. But fundamentally, we have to try and communicate that consuming better and less is actually a better choice. And then you create better market competition because actually, is this product really well made? Is it going to last? When you create like an ecosystem of fairness where like price isn't such a driver and isn't creating such sensitivity amongst the consumer, which I think is an important first step, the education piece of the consumer, which I see happening quite rapidly. I see a lot of brands now communicating facts to the best of their ability. Fast fashion trends evolving very quickly, discounting culture, 
much lower cost of retail prices that make purchasing decisions less thoughtful and tap into that mindset of, okay, I need to have this. And actually, you probably could have one t-shirt for the cost of three, but that lasts you the same amount of time if there's research and education behind it. The more educated the consumer is, the better they'll spend. And fundamentally, the more that legacy brands who ultimately are thinking with their pockets and rather than how can we make the product better? How can we make the service that we provide better? And not just better from a technical or functional aspect, but also from an environmental aspect, they all just get cannibalized. Do you feel you are at a particular advantage when driving change compared to some of these legacy companies that you've mentioned? I think in terms of driving change, we've got inherent advantage because there's no doubt that suppliers, consumers, and generally just the whole business ecosystem is getting more aware of climate change and sustainability. Let's say I started this five years ago and I'm like, hey, I want to use PLA corn fiber. Those type of conversations might have been much more challenging and more difficult. So I think that we have some momentum there. I think what's great about sustainability and this kind of climate movement is it's actually the opposite of anti-business to be focused on that. It's incredibly pro-business, right? Because there's no doubt in my mind that based on science, companies need to adapt or else you will die as a business. In terms of challenges, the key point of any company and any brand is, is the product or service competitive? That's what happens in a free market. Is my shoe, as much as it could have a great impact, if it's no good, then nobody wants it, right? Like that's a fundamental requirement. So when you add together, hey, I want to have a great impact, but my shoe has to function and perform for athletes, for people and has to meet their expectations, you add a much, much greater layer of complexity to that conversation. As I said, the intent is there to do good and improve things, but sometimes it's a resource discussion. Sometimes it's a lack of knowledge discussion. And we just got to have that positivity and support from our consumer to help us get there. And one thing I'll say, we really have seen that. Like everyone's been so supportive and goodwill. That's why I'm massively positive, I think, about the landscape because I see it every day, the kindness and the acts of goodwill. What have you seen in the way that young people are responding to the climate crisis? And have you been aware or have you seen eco-anxiety manifest? Yeah, because I feel somewhat of it myself. Fundamentally, the reason I started this company and want to spend my life in business working on these type of issues is because as a dad now, as somebody that played sport and saw like eight of my matches get flooded and cooled off in recent years and seeing the impact of sport daily, I completely understand why. You mentioned recently becoming a dad. Has that affected the way that you think about your mission, your work, the way that you think about the future or the climate crisis? Yeah, it's the most special feeling, 100%. There's no doubt that when you become a parent, your sense of purpose and your thought about the future becomes more acute because you're not living for yourself. You have this greater sense of purpose, really. And I think for Luna, I want her certainly to like step into a world that still has good chance of survival and also feel proud and optimistic that you know her dad had a small say in that. I think your story is incredibly powerful because you weren't a sustainability expert. You came from a very different world and yet you took up this mandate and decided it was your responsibility. With a lot of people that I work with across generations and backgrounds, we often fall victim to thoughts like, I'm not the right person, I'm not smart enough or experienced enough or it's not up to me. What would you say to people who feel some of those things and and might be paralyzed by some of those self-limiting stories? You just got to be quite relentless and focus with what your end goal is and accept that you're going to make mistakes on the journey. And I think the key thing about that is accepting you'll make mistakes and being comfortable with that reality. It's part of the journey. Like, hey, I'm going to get things wrong. I get it wrong every single day. I'm comfortable with that because I know that my intent is there and I know that I'm working towards solutions which fundamentally I believe to be the right ones. And I think there's a lot in society about quick fixes and success stories. And the reality is, 
is it's like it's not a quick fix nothing's a quick fix it's not easy these companies these things that have developed over time the key word is time and it does take that and so don't hold yourself to standards that we see in front of us on social media etc because a lot of it's bs and it's not true so that would be my advice and i think there's quite a lot of solutions on the table but like i try not to tell people how to be but just do what feels natural to you like if it's protest and letters then do that if it's hey i'm gonna buy a reusable cup at the office and have some water and rather than buy plastic bottles or whatever that's cool too if it's i'm gonna spend better and do my research on consumer stuff then that's cool if it's hey i'm just gonna talk about it more then i'm gonna talk about it more and i think i read somewhere sometime and this probably needs fact checking but it takes two percent of the world's population to change something for there to be a global impact for me that's why i'm still positive is i just think like the more we enable the discussion the more we open it up it's actually this positive right and i do think that positive discussion even in the midst of like anxiety or whatever's going on is going to lead to better output Clothes are an amazing vehicle to express ourselves, to communicate without words who we are and what we value. As we heard from Caroline, that motivation to be seen, to wear our personalities on the outside, is a really healthy one. Yet, we can see how that desire to both fit in and be unique is preyed upon by a fast fashion industry that wants people to buy as much clothing as quickly as possible. Aditi spoke to how eco-anxiety, and in particular, that feeling of hopelessness we heard from young people, is fueled by a crisis in imagination. Particularly for those of us who have grown up in a time where fast fashion is all we've ever known. A world of 52 fashion seasons, with the pressure to wear a different outfit in every Instagram post. It's so difficult to imagine how we might do things differently, or return to how things once were. And this isn't just a product of the problems, but the fact that our imaginations have been hijacked. I'd never heard this acronym before, TINA. There is no alternative. Hearing this from Aditi is both insidious and kind of empowering. Insidious because it's not in the interest of fast fashion giants for people to challenge the status quo. H&M might pander to our concerns through Greenwash, through their Conscious collections, or Primark through its Primark Cares campaign. Yet, if people actually opt out from their products, if people really say, hey, perhaps we should do things differently, that is a threat to their bottom line that they won't take lightly. Yet bringing this into the light, revealing these private interests for what they are is empowering because with that knowledge, we can choose not to do what they want us to, resign ourselves to the situation or fall into nihilistic thinking that the problem is too big to fix. Instead, we can choose the act of resistance that is daring to dream. As a DTC, said that doesn't need to manifest as some far off future vision. We can draw power and wisdom today from those on the front lines. Indigenous communities show us what's possible when you have a symbiotic relationship with the natural world rooted in communities that look after one another. As we talked about in our episode on media, we can catalyze our feelings of anxiety or grief into agency by coupling them with creativity, vision, and imagination. In the same way Aditi started her blog at 3am one day, or the way Michael chose to start a sustainable brand, not because he had the skills or expertise, but because facing up to the problem ignited that fire within him. We all have the power to choose. We might not be able to change fast fashion overnight, but what we can change is our mindset. Whether we choose to fall into despair and stay there, or be courageous enough to stand in that better, brighter future our hearts know is possible. Next week on the show, we'll be discussing food. We have amazing conversations lined up. You'll hear from Jamie Crummy, 
founder of Too Good To Go, as well as Christine Doherty, the VP of Agriculture at PepsiCo. As always, you'll be hearing from Young Voices, our resident psychotherapist, and me, your host, Clover Hogan. See you there. How did today's episode make you feel? Let us know by heading over to Force of Nature's Instagram at forceofnature.xyz and dropping us a comment or DM. We've also partnered with Aditi on her handle at Aditi Maya to bring you some pretty epic content. Be sure to head over to the gram and join the conversation. If you haven't already subscribed to the podcast, you know what to do. This podcast was brought to you by Force of Nature and One Fine Play. From One Fine Play, James Bishop is the executive producer. Kazra Feruzia is the editor and producer. Connor Foley is the producer and researcher with additional creative support from Selena Christofidis. Running Force of Nature takes a village and would not be possible without Phoebe Hansen, Kathleen Hamilton, Alejandra Arias, Sasha Wright, Julia Sams, Vida Han, and Zineb Jadon. As a reminder, if you're feeling particularly overwhelmed by eco-anxiety, you can find a whole host of resources to support you at forceofnature.xyz. Additionally, if you are struggling with your mental health, please consult a medical professional.